Unexplained disappearances, strange Stonehenge-like ruins, UFO sightings, mirages, with both ships and airplanes vanishing without a trace. Are you talking about the Bermuda Triangle? Sound familiar? No, it's not the Bermuda Triangle. But I understand why you would make that connection. This mysterious place is a little closer inland, inside the United States, in less than 1,000 feet of water. Did you know? Lake Michigan has its own version of the Bermuda Triangle. Well, if not, you're about to get a quick lesson. It loosely lies between three points of Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Across from that is Ludington, Michigan, and southward down to Benton Harbor. And while it's much, much smaller than its counterpart, it has some eerily similarities that makes it unforgettable. Join us tonight as we chart and embark the journey into the Michigan Triangle, where we hope you will join us, and we hope we'll all make it out. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So first, some people claim that more than just that little area that you mentioned, the entire lake itself is you know, a, a dangerous place. Very true. Very true. And the experts will tell you that there's no more disappearances, shipwrecks, blah, 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 than anywhere else. The same blah, thing they blah, said about, blah. it was the same thing they said about the Bermuda Triangle, but let's be honest. I mean, stuff happens, right? Stuff happens. It's hard to, to disagree when you have so much weirdness. And I'm going to tell you, I stumbled across, across some stories and, and I'm sure we have similar stuff here. I mean, it's not limited to just weird shipwrecks and like boats disappearing, people disappearing, people Time traveling. Time travel. UFOs. I mean, yeah, it's it's got a little bit of everything. Yeah. And the, you know, I I had I had kind of heard the story a little bit before, like I don't and I never really delved into it very much. But yeah, some of the stuff that's reported, some of these stories are just crazy. Well, some measure of comparison, if you will, uh, to put it uh, in some form of a measurement. The the Michigan Triangle, depending on your sources, there are documented 6,000 missing sailing vessels beneath the waters. Now, many sources, however, claim there's to be many, many more than that. That's just the ones that have been reported and that are known. Now, due to this unknown number of incidents, a group called the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates was formed in 2001. Their mission? To preserve Michigan's submerged maritime heritage. There's an annual expedition conducted to discover the shipwrecks in Lake Michigan. Now, to date, out of all these thousands of documented shipwrecks, currently only about 300 have been actually located and found in the depths of the mysterious abyss. Now, to me, that says a lot. This group has access to some of the most sophisticated sonar equipment. Uh, Many members of this annual expedition Uh, have vast experience searching for shipwrecks in the oceans and seas at much, much deeper depths. They're they're used to searching for this type stuff and are quite successful, I might add, at finding them in the oceans and seas. You know, discovering the shipwrecks in these waters with the depth of over 10,000 feet or more in the oceans and such 
Yet Lake Michigan's greatest dip is only about 920 feet, so less than 1,000 feet deep at its deepest point. Yet to date, only a small handful of shipwrecks have been found. You would think it would be much easier to locate a sunken ship in less than 1,000 foot of water compared to that of 10,000 foot of water. Now, to be fair, some of these shipwrecks that they have found, they found in 40 feet of water. How did it go that, I mean, that you're long talking almost 100 years. Discovered. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it's like these ships have just literally vanished. So, so what events have happened here to make us believe that this, this place is fraught with danger? 1679. That's going back a ways. This is believed to be the first major unexplained event in Lake Michigan Triangle. And it is the story of the French sailing ship Le Griffon. I love that name. I mean, I say it in French, right? Le Griffon. But Le Griffon and her crew on September 18th were docked at La, La Grande Bay, which we would call Green Bay now, was loaded with 12,000 pounds of fur. A lot of fur. It's a lot of fur. A lot of fur. Its destination, Lake Erie, which I've always liked the name Lake Erie. It sounds spooky. Spooky, spooky. Le Griffon never arrived at her destination. He's going to go through Lake Erie up St. Lawrence River and then eventually to, to Europe. And he was going to cash in the captain on this massive fur score. And this is one of the ships that's never been found. No remains of, of the Le Griffon have ever been located. Well, now take that step a little step further. The local Indian tribes uh, who he had been purchasing, trading these furs for, the chief in particular approached the crew and warned them of the lake's mysterious squalls. These great storms that just popped up out of nowhere and could swallow entire ships. Now, the captain, René Robert Keverer, smiled and thanked him. But at the time, he said, I have built the mightiest of ships. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? One worthy of sailing across the ocean all the way to Europe. I don't have time for these native superstitions. There was money to be made, and they needed to set sail immediately in order to make the trip before the harshest of winter conditions were on their tails. So, as Bill said, they set sail that following day. However, René Robert Cavaret, the captain, decides to stay back on land. He's decided there's even more fur to collect. So he instructs another captain and crew that as soon as they return, he's going to have another load of furs waiting for him to take back to Europe. Ship sets sail and vanishes without a trace. There is no reports of a sudden storm or the squalls, as the Indian chief had warned him about. There's no wreckage. There's no debris. There's no survivors. He also notes there's no stories of any huge fur batch being sold or bartered. There was no pirates that took ownership nor bragged of overcoming the Le Griffon ship. Just poof, and it was gone. 350 years later, we still have no better clue of what happened. The next incident that, that happens is at the, at the time was, I believe, I believe at the time and even still today stands as the deadliest open water sinking on the Great Lakes. And this happened in 1860 when the wooden steamship Lady Elgin collided with a small boat, the Augusta. Now, you would think if a much larger steamship collided with a much smaller boat, the Augusta would be the one that sank. Now, the, the Augusta sailed safely into harbor and got repaired as, as needed. The Lady Elgin, on the other hand, sank, taking 300 passengers to their watery grave. Wow, that's a big number. I've got a story, another one here. The Mary McLean, with giant falling blocks of ice from the sky. Okay, who could have thought a clear and cloudless sky would cause harm to a ship? But that's what has to be explained with the Michigan Triangle. 
1883, the crew of a wooden tugboat named the Mary McLean that worked out of Chicago Harbor had a strange story to tell. They claimed to have witnessed mighty blocks of ice falling from the sky while on the lake for a whole 30 minutes. It did not stop. It was so powerful that it caused dents in the tug's wooden surface. The crew even managed to save large chunks of ice in its galley icebox and reaccounted the horrific ordeal at the harbor. One of those pieces weighed two pounds when they brought it out. Now, these aren't like, you know, little chunks of ice. This, I mean, these sounded like huge blocks of ice. And I thought that was strange, too. They said blocks, you know, most of the stuff. Well, they, they said, what, they're like the size of a brick in yeah. some cases? But, it, I mean, like hail comes down. It's oblong. It's rounded. These were described as blocks of ice. But it, it did damage to the ship. Yes. I mean, wow. So, 1891. Really, this is sort of the event that starts the stories in the Michigan Triangle. After this, you know, the stories of strange shipwrecks and mysterious disappearances become way more frequent. And that is the sinking of the Thomas Hume, 1891. On May 21st, the Thomas Hume and the Rouse Simmons, I say Rouse, I don't know if that's right, Rouse? Rouse, Rouse. And the Rouse Simmons left port in Chicago. Now, they were supposed to return to Muskegon, but encountered a sudden savage windstorm which apparently is not uncommon for Lake Michigan. Yeah, these squalls. Guess yeah. The shape of the lake sort of lends itself to creating this, this sort of tunnel effect for the wind, and, and these wind, these sudden squalls can just come out of nowhere. Now, the Rouse Simmons, her captain decided, we're going back to Chicago, we're going to wait out the storm. Now, the Thomas Hume's captain, he decided he's going to brave the weather, and they continued on. And the Thomas Hume would disappear with all hands lost. Never found the ship, no crew survived. A search vessel was sent out, but they had no success in finding any wreckage, any remains, anything. The Thomas Hume was, was gone. Now, in 2006, she was found. We have one that was found. Now, there was another totally unrelated search going on. They were searching for a lost U.S. Navy plane when the Thomas Hume was found almost entirely intact, 150 feet below the surface. 150 feet. That's really not that much. Now, related to this story, and, and we may skip a couple of years here, but 21 years after the loss of the Thomas Hume on November 22nd, 1912, the Rouse Simmons is on another run across Lake Michigan waters, this time transporting Christmas trees from Thompson to Chicago. Now the captain helped load the trees on board and invited the lumberjacks for a free ride. Hey, if you want to come with us, we'll take you with, no problem. Mighty kind, mighty kind. Um, This time the Rouse Simmons would not be so lucky and she never made it to Chicago. And she was later spotted sailing in clear conditions with a distress flag flying. And upon inspection, when she was boarded, no trace of the crew was ever found. Huh. Just out there floating around. A year later, Christmas trees began to wash up on the shore of Lake Michigan. And a year after that, a fisherman in two rivers hooked the captain's wallet. Wow. So. That had been underneath there for a while. Yeah. Hmm. Another interesting story is that of the Rosabelle. And this story was kind of, I found it very interesting. Now, the Rosabelle was a two-masted ship used to transport materials. And between 1875 and 1926, she was found capsized twice in Lake Michigan. What's the chances? Yeah, crazy. Both times when she was found, no sign of her crew. In 1875... Which I believe was 11 members was the standard crew. Yeah. Yeah. In 1875, a car ferry discovered her floating upside down. She was turned over and returned to port in Milwaukee. In October 1921... She was ready to depart with a load of potatoes and lumber, and the captain, Ed Johnson, he refused to get on board that time. I remember this part. Yeah, his, his son later told people that Ed had had a premonition of disaster, 
and could not be convinced to get back on board the Rosabelle again. Now, the crew elected to leave without him, and days later, she was found, capsized again. Again. This time Deja her, vu. Yeah. This time, her stern was missing, indicating some sort of collision, but no other ship reported having an accident in the lake at that time. Now, the Coast Guard later determined that there had been no collision, but, I mean, if there is no collision, where was the missing part of the ship? And again, I believe 11 members were just yeah. vanished. No, no sign of them. Now, that time, I believe they hauled her into port. I don't know if they repaired her or not, but the first time they, they put her back in the water. Yeah, it was like just flipping back over and it was ready to sail again. I yeah. mean, there wasn't like any damage. The second time, there may have been some minimal damage, but I don't think it was like anything major at all. Well, I have one uh, kind of an interesting story for sure here. Uh, it is the disappearance of Captain George Donner from his ship, the O.M. McFarland. Another unexplained mystery in the Michigan Triangle is the disappearance of Captain George Donner, who was guiding the ship O.M. McFarland in 1937. The ship was on his way to Port Washington, Wisconsin, when the captain went to his cabin. Well, th- this day was actually the captain's 58th birthday, which made it stand out. And if it makes a difference, she was loaded down with 9,800 tons of coal. That's a lot of coal. So, yeah, again, a lot another of heavy load. A lot of weight. On his birthday... Uh, it is said that the captain had got them through the most treacherous part of the journey, and he decided that he was going to retire to the cabin, kind of take a little nap, leaving message for the crew members to awake him when they were nearing port. Now, the crew followed the instructions and knocked on the captain's door, but there was no response. Much to their surprise, the cabin was locked from the inside, and they had to literally break the door down to gain access. However, Once inside, the captain was nowhere to be found. He had vanished without a trace. The frightened crew revealed that the ship was in the Michigan Triangle when the chilling incident occurred. Now, this one was really intriguing to me. You know, the door was locked on the inside. And I I tried to do a little research for that time frame. And while it is vague, it seems most likely it would be one of these bar boards that like you would seal it from the inside or at least a hook on the inside. It wouldn't have been like a key that you could lock from the outside easily. It would definitely lend itself that someone physically had to be inside the room to lock the door. But obviously there was one door in one, you know, one door out. So whoever locked it would have had to have been at least at one time in the room. And again, I don't think a key aspect was a part of that style door at the time. Also, Captain Donner, like I said, he'd, he'd already got the ship through the most treacherous portion of the journey. The dangerous part was done. You know, things were going well. They had made it, so to speak. So he goes up to rest. He tells the crew, you know, wake me when we start to get to port. You know, why? How? Some people would speculate, well, maybe there was windows and you crawled out the window. He had two portals in his room is, is what I found. There were two portals in the room. But according to everybody on board, Donner would have been too big to fit through those. I was going to say, some of those portal windows not are very pretty small. If no, you were they, a they young child, was, maybe you could fit through. Donner would not have been, he was he was too big to fit through the portals in his room, which had two. And they also said that he'd shown no signs of any sort of emotional or mental fatigue. He, he wasn't depressed. He didn't seem suicidal. And again, if he was physically able to even squeeze out one of these small windows, he would have surely just dove into the icy waters. Again, why? He wasn't under yeah. distress. The hardest part of the journey was done. That one was just, that was really weird one for me. I, I, I enjoyed that one. Well, one of the ones I found kind of chilling, actually, as someone who's been on an airline flight with pretty significant turbulence, you know, that's not fun. That is not fun. The, the Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501. 
Now, on uh, on the night of June 23rd, 1950, 2501 left LaGuardia in New York heading for Minneapolis. And even though the weather on the route included thunderstorms and possible high winds, the captain and the crew did not seem overly concerned about their path. Like, they, you know, they, they could fly over it, they fly under it, whatever. Yeah. Not that crazy of a storm. Now, the captain took the flight to an altitude of 4,000 feet instead of the assigned 6,000 feet. And the, the thought there is he tried to stay as low as he could to avoid some of the upper level turbulence. Um, however, severe turbulence caused them to descend another 500 feet as they were flying. As they flew over Lake Michigan, air traffic control told the pilot to stay at 3,500 feet to avoid collision with another aircraft. Now, later, Captain Lind and his co-pilot decided to veer south to avoid some severe storm activity. However, they unintentionally flew directly into a squall line. Now, a squall line, like we said, just those severe, sudden, powerful winds. So it would have made turbulence even worse. At 11.13 p.m., they requested permission to descend to 2,500 feet, but ground control denied the request, saying there was a plane departing from Milwaukee at that time, and it would have put them square in their path and could have resulted in a midair collision. That was the final transmission from Flight 2501. Now, by midnight, radio operators realized that the plane was missing. They hadn't heard anything from them. They couldn't bring them up. And the next day, the Coast Guard found an oil slick and some debris about 18 miles northwest of Benton Harbor. Now, in the following days, they found more debris as well as human remains in the area. Mm -hmm. My understanding, though, is they never found a piece of the plane larger than a human hand. And uh, they did find like a pair of pants or a jacket, I believe, that belonged to a child. There was one child on the on the manifest. So that can kind of say that this was the remains. There was no fuselage. Uh, no type of a black box was ever recovered. You know, that, you know, obviously they use as like a homing device or homing beacon. And another interesting part of that story was the area that the plane was supposed to fly over, now we're assuming it didn't have to veer off, the water was only 40 to 50 foot deep. So again, we're talking really pretty shallow water, but no parts of the craft, as you said, maybe some very small pieces the size of your hand, but yeah. no wing, no fuselage, none of that has ever been found. A little less known fact to this story uh, overlaps a strange electrical storm, maybe is the best word to cause it. Uh, a lightning storm was reported to have occurred about the same time frame uh, for about a period of an hour in that vicinity of where the plane would be coming through. Now, this was, uh, was this a natural storm or was it a storm at all? Well, some conspiracy theorists suggest that the plane was abducted by a UFO. Yes. The evidence cites two police officers in the area that said they saw red lights hovering over the lake for about two hours after the plane disappeared. Mm -hmm. So. And then that they sped off across the sky, you know, yep. all in the same night, the same vicinity, about the same time the last radio communication took place. Now that's that's a lot of coincidences. And as Bill said, you know, there there is this belief that there was a possible alien abduction. Again, if you if you open your mind and kind of lead lean yourself into this, you know, flight twenty five oh one, could it have been like literally taken from the sky, pulled up into like a large UFO or flying craft? You know, the 55 passengers, three crew members, maybe they didn't all make that jump or whatever, uh, being beamed aboard, whatever your mind wants to imagine. And maybe they got the plane, but then part of the stuff fell out. Uh, you know, the oil slick was accounted for, some suitcases, some of the body pieces and, and such. But uh, maybe that's why there was no black box or homing beacon or fuselage. You know, again, that's a decent sized plane to not be found in 40 to 50 foot of water. That's a weird one. That's a very weird one. My absolute favorite Michigan Triangle incident uh, took place February 20th, 1978. 
I hope I'm pronouncing the gentleman's name correctly, Stephen Tabaki, uh, is a 23-year-old college student. Uh, he's taking a break to do some cross-country skiing in the Michigan winter wonderland uh, up near Sagartok. I guess he was going along the coastline now, for whatever reason. For whatever reason. I mean, just taking in the beautiful scenery, I think. A couple hours later, some other folks in snowmobiles happen to be in the same vicinity, and they find Stephen's gear lying on the snow, but no signs of Stephen. Now, the police are called. First responders arrived at the scene to investigate. And they clearly still see fresh footprints in the snow. Uh, and it appears that Stephen Tabaki had taken off his gear, maybe walked in circles or walked in this area for a period of time where he took off this gear. And then there is a set of footprints that just kind of lead away from this and then just vanish. Footprints just, just stop. Now they examine this frozen ice-covered lake that was right there in that vicinity. There's no signs of breakage, you know, no holes in the ice. However, the obvious conclusion is, well, he must have fallen through the ice. But why would if he removed his gear and then walked away from it like that? I mean, he's out here in the middle of nowhere. Still, there's no other explanation. But again, within a period of hours, the ice would not have frozen back to cover a hole entirely. So Stephen Tabachi is still presumed dead. By an accidental drowning, although there's really no physical signs of, you know, how he would have fallen through, where he would have fallen through a few hours prior. There's even a memorial service. Uh, the family mourns, and, you know, but life has to go on. But that can't be the end of this story, right? Oh, no, friends. Buckle up. This is why it's one of my favorite stories. Fifteen months later. That's right. A whole year and three months later, Stephen Tabaki reappears. Not in Michigan. Oh, no. He awakens from sleeping in a field, dressed in clothes that he has never owned in his life or ever seen. This is over 700 miles from where he disappeared. 750 miles away in Massachusetts. He's also wearing a pair of glasses that fit his prescription that is not his. He's dazed. He's confused, obviously. He finally gets his bearings and he recognizes he's actually very near his aunt's home as we said, 750 miles away in, in Massachusetts. He has no recollection of how he got here, where he got these clothes, where he got these glasses, or any memories of the past 15 months. He does go public with the story, but is quickly ridiculed and laughed at. You know, come on, folks. This dude was presumed dead 15 months ago. He vanished without a trace. His footprints just stopped in the snow. But after taking such ridicule, Stephen decides to go silent, and he's not talking about the story anymore, to a point he leaves the entire area, and he's trying to leave this whole ordeal behind him and just, you know, start a new life. Today, Stephen lives in the Pacific Northwest area. He refuses to talk about the incident, stating only that I have said what I have to say when it happened. There's nothing more to add. There's nothing less. He's happy to be thousands of miles away and just trying to live out his life in peace. Now, you talk about a weird, <laughs> bizarre story. That's, that, that was a great one. Well, I'm going to jump to 1994, but we're going to touch a little bit on some history. The first documented UFO sightings in the area were in 1913. And in 1919, many people observed unusual bright lights in the sky above the triangle. But it all sort of seems to build up to what is probably the most well-documented UFO outbreak, which happened in 1994. The Muskegon. And this, yeah, this was to the west of Holland and off the coast of Muskegon. Now, these sightings were all linked by similar descriptions of the UFO scene, including color, shape, and distance overhead, 
People said they looked like flickering Christmas lights when they saw them, with sightings consisting of five or six cylinder or circle-shaped objects with blue, red, white, and green lights. Very festive. Yeah. <laughs> now, they were said to be, uh, there were said to be over 300 witnesses across Michigan, with sightings reported to 911 and observed by police and a National Weather Service employee that said that they watched the UFOs on radar at Muskegon County Airport, hovering over the lake and then disappearing. The National Weather Service operator was recorded in a call with police discussing the incident. And this is straight from the, the this, call. This poor dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something big down there. That's really strange. It's moving towards the west-southwest. Looks like a big blob. It was up about 6,000 feet or so. It disappears. It's moving. After a short pause, he continues. I'm getting it now at about 12,000 feet. It's a pretty strong return. Oh, my God. What is this? Now I'm getting three of them. And uh, they're separated by about 5,000 feet in height. I'm seeing three. They look like a triangle on my scope. I've never seen anything like this, not even when I'm doing storms. These aren't storms. The operator said that the blips on his radar clearly were not planes, as planes would appear as pinpoints on his radar. He said each of these was the size of about half a thumbnail on his screen, so much bigger in scale. And keep in mind, all these phone calls are also ringing in about the same time frame from multiple counties. Now, witnesses said that at least one UFO was witnessed pulling a column of water up into the ship from the lake. I have that story. Okay. There was a couple that said that was parked near the lakeshore that night. Uh, some say camping. Some said they were parked. They were young people probably doing, you know, what young people do. <laughs> we'll just parked. Well, they, yeah, they were parked. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, they were parked there under the stars, you know, looking out for a good time. But they were interrupted when they saw two large red balls of fire at first that stopped to hover above the lake several hundred feet away from where they were at. Now, they said these huge balls of fire begin to change taking shape into, their words, flying disks, like they were cooling down. They then noticed the craft sucking up large amounts of water, like in a stream from the lake, into the center of the ships. It is now hypothesized that whoever these pilots may be, they could have been resourcing the water to cool their ships down, possibly after entering the Earth's atmosphere. Now, what I think is really different about this type of UFO encounter. It is kind of comical to me. There, there's no attempt to mask or cloak themselves whatsoever. It's like they were picked up on radar. 300 plus calls came in multiple counties. They were being seen. It's like, we just don't care. Like some gang members just trotting through another city street saying, Hey y'all, we're here. You know what I mean? It, it was, it was just like blatant. I thought that was very interesting. The next story I have is from July 3rd, 1998, with Donald Schaller. Now, he was flying a two-seat, high-performance, single-engine jet. Schaller was a veteran pilot and was planning on participating in his first air show. Now, with Schaller was Donovan Rodriguez, who was also an experienced pilot and a flight instructor. Uh, Roughly 6 p.m., Schaller radioed that he was 27 miles out from Cherry Capital Airport. This was the airport he had left from, and he was planning on returning to the airport. Didn't say why, just said he was planning on returning. Now, soon after, flight controllers noticed that the jet had vanished from radar and they could no longer make radio contact with Schaller. Now, Coast Guard helicopters quickly began searching the area, but turned up nothing, and the search was joined by a Canadian cargo plane the following day. After searching for miles of land and water, no sign of the plane was ever found, and the search ended on July 9th. That is, I mean, the, the really most bizarre point. Again, shallow water, but none, oh, not none. Very few of these have ever been found. Why if they went in the lake, why didn't you discover them? If they landed in the woods, why didn't you discover them? I mean, well, I will say that there is this saying, I guess, on the Great Lakes 
the, the lakes never give up their dead. <laughs> now, part of that is because the water is so cold in the Great Lakes that bodies don't decompose. They and don't so float. they don't, they don't come to the surface. And I, I guess the same could be said of the, the ships. But like you said, it's not that deep. You'd think if they With know the they have them and they scour looking for them. Sonar and all that, you would think we would get some pings. I mean, Michigan has a stone hinge beneath the waters of, you guessed it, the Michigan Triangle. In 2007, archaeology professor uh, Mark Holly and his colleague Brian Abbott, they're running a sonar search around the Lake Michigan Triangle area in an effort to find shipwrecks. There's a lot of people out there looking for these things, folks. Well, they discovered in about 40 feet of water, a line of stones arranged in a pattern reminiscent of that of Stonehenge. They sent divers to photograph the area and found alongside this line of stones what could be a prehistoric carving of a mastodon, which went extinct over 12,000 years ago. Now, the site has not been authenticated, and exact location still remains a secret. They're guarding that. But much like Stonehenge, there's little explanation you know, for these carefully, well-thought-out, arranged underwater stones and what they signify or why they put them there. Now, no definite ties or connection, connections link the several bizarre incidents that mark the Triangle of Lake Michigan to, per se, this strange stone configuration that lies underneath its waters. But again, that's a mighty strange coincidence. You know, there's no denying the eeriness. Now, I know... Uh, for those of you that believe in ley lines, they say that Stonehenge rests on a ley line. Mm-hmm. I believe, according to ley maps, there's a ley line that runs right up the middle of Lake Michigan, too, which this this Stonehenge, if you will, would Michigan's be version. on that line. Well, there we go. There we go. As H.P. Lovecraft said, you know, we live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far away. Well, then I decided to do a little bit more uh, research. It's not just about disappearance of planes and crafts, but there's some other weird things kind of associated with Lake Michigan. And again, it's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle, and as Bill alluded to before, not everything is within the boundaries of the triangle. It's it's in, in proximity. But um, did you know Michigan State Stone is called a Petoskey? They're round stones. Only exist on Lake Michigan. You can't find them anyplace else in the world. And it's comprised of fossilized coral and then appear polished, round, oblong shape, believed to have taken place by rolling around for thousands and thousands of years at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Now, there is no such thing as freshwater coral. So Lake Michigan is freshwater, at least now. So it's believed that the Great Lakes were at some point in time, you know, part of the saltwater ocean seas, if you will. But through history, somehow this area became divided and became lakes, but then somehow purified of all of its salt to become the freshwater lakes that we know and love today. Now, you would have, it would have had to have been pre-Ice Age, tens of thousands of years ago. These stones are very strange looking. They have spots uh, like you would see similar to a, like looking through a kaleidoscope, for those of you old enough to know what that is. <laughs> or similar to uh, Mandalay uh, patterns of artwork. They can be found on the beaches of Lake Michigan still today and are are quite prized. And like I said, that is the uh, Michigan State Stone. Another weird thing, giant ice balls. I saw videos of this, Bill. It was bizarre. All different sizes. 
But instead of the classic frozen glacier ice chunks that you would encounter, you know, out on the lake, like oh, obviously it took down Titanic <laughs> and the ocean on a much larger scale, Lake Michigan has another phenomenon that is not fully understood, and that is these giant ice balls. They're almost perfectly formed spheres or circles. They bellow up, churning up like a volcano beneath the lake's surface belches them up. And I saw a video of, of a pretty good-sized ship, and put it in perspective, it was all a big uh, steel ship, and the sailors or fishermen were out here recording this. There were probably 12, 12 to 15 of these giant ice balls, at least the size of beach balls, that are just start bobbing up around the, the ship. And you can see, like, it's almost like letting out gases, like literally a volcano had erupted beneath the surface. But again, the deepest point of these things, of the Lake Michigan, is less than a thousand foot deep. It is so weird. Yeah, I just pulled up a video of them, like, washing in on the waves and... Some of these things are yeah. five and six foot in diameter. They're as tall as a human. But the one that takes the cake, strange icy sand formations. Appearing on the beaches of Lake Michigan, there's another very strange phenomenon. This is like a psychedelic walk on Mars or whatever you were smoking back in the hippie days. Imagine walking on the beach in winter and you come across what appears to be hundreds of intricate, sand sculptures according to science naturally formed due to the ice mixing with the sand hardening freezing and then these strong winds these squalls that we talked about with the lake have spun around these to create the most perfect shaped mushroom kind of inspired spinning top type of sculptures some even look like a round space age table balancing on a needle with the umbrella-shaped roof or top on them. They're the most bizarre, weirdest-looking things. And they vary from maybe a foot tall to three, four foot tall. If you came across this, it looks like something <laughs> right out of a sci-fi movie, or you would expect to see like little fae and fairy folk playing around. But water, when it freezes, does weird things. I don't know if you've ever opened, like, I have, you know, the old-fashioned ice cube trays. Mm -hmm. And, uh... Every now and then you open your freezer and there'll be like a little spike of ice poking out of the middle of an ice cube. Right. So, like, how did that happen? Yeah, it seems weird. Well, the so, earth is spinning very quickly. Ice so. does weird things. But again, you know, the fact that hundreds of these can just show up on the beach, it seems to all be around Lake Michigan. There's definitely some <laughs> weird stuff going on there. And another thing I actually talked about is mirages. Now, many people have reported, and there are several photographs of mirages appearing in the Lake Michigan area. Uh, everything from what appears to be giant glaciers that are floating, that as ships approach, these massive glaciers just disappear, to ghost-like ships that are whisked away with the winds as you approach them. There's also photos and reports of what appears to be entire cityscapes. Some have been identified as uh, possible Chicago in the distance, but they might be on a, an island that doesn't exist, and as you approach it, it disappears. Or you might arrive and it's a barren beach, although it looked like skyscrapers were built there. Some people believe that these uh, have a scientific explanation that it's made up of lightning, wind, and gases that may be coming up from beneath the waters. And somehow all of this stuff is playing tricks on our eyes and making these mirages. So, Bill, 
Is it time for headlines? I've got a headline, and just reading the headline, I want to make it clear before I get to that. It's about a part of Lake Michigan that is apparently also known to be treacherous. Uh, This is from WKFR 103.3 by Lauren Gordon, dated September 26, 2023. Why this cursed part of Lake Michigan is known as Death's Door. Death's Door. The narrow passage, known as Death's Door, is situated between the tip of the Wisconsin Peninsula and Plum Island in Lake Michigan. This dangerous yet necessary passage was once one of the only ways to connect trade in Green Bay to the rest of the Great Lakes, and was originally known as Porta des Mortis, Mm -hmm. or Door of the Dead, or Death's Door. But how did it acquire such an ominous name? Now, one legend claims the Strait's reputation resulted from a battle between rival Native American tribes, the Potawatomi and the Winnebago. A group of Potawatomi warriors had set out to attack the Winnebago on the mainland, and meanwhile, the, a, a group of the Winnebago tribe had been sent out to attack the Potawatomi, who lived on the islands. Now, even though the waters were calm when the two tribes set out, the weather quickly turned and their canoes were capsized and the warriors were trapped on the rocky shores of Ellison Bay, and many Winnebago warriors were never seen again. Mm. Now, according to Door County, which I believe is the county where this is all at, in all, hundreds of warriors died, giving the thin stretch of water its name. Or, maybe the name came from French explorers. Some accounts claim French explorers in the 1700s named the strait, you know, the Death's Door, upon hearing the natives' tales after sailing these treacherous passages themselves, And others say the French used the ominous name to discourage British fur traders from using the same stretch of water. Now, how dangerous is this stretch of water? With over 275 shipwrecks located in the waters of Door County, it does seem dangerous. However, officials who live there say that while, quote, known for taking lives in many vessels, it's a wonder why the waters dubbed Death's Door remain such a popular maritime passageway. While traveling through this area does present its own challenges for boaters, the tragic stories of shipwrecks are now more the stuff of legend than reality. Hmm. So even if you're not in the actual triangle, apparently, like I said, that whole lake is un- unusually dangerous. Well, I stumbled across uh, an article by Stacker online. It was published December 21st, 2021, per my headline. Uh, I talked about just how many UFO sightings there were by state. And in particular, obviously, I wanted to focus on Michigan for this episode. Uh, number of UFO sightings in Michigan. 2,475 reported as to date of 2021 when the article was published. Now, keep in mind, these are, again, are the only officially reported cases by, uh, you know, by the state or area, by law offices or, or whatever. The number is obviously presumed in any state to be considerably more. But this data was collected by the National UFO Reporting Center that was founded back in 1974. They share a few of the cases in particular, and, and one I had to share. It's a documented case uh, in particular, this one caught my eye, that was semi-related around the Great Lakes region. U.S. Air Force pilot, First Lieutenant Felix Eugene Moncla Jr. in 1953 was conducting an air defense intercept over Lake Superior near the area of Solox in Michigan when he and his plane disappeared. In what is today kind of considered or known as the Kinross Incident, that comes from Monocla was uh, temporarily assigned to Kinross Air Force Base, so that's kind of where it derives its name. The Air Defense Command radar found a UFO, they described, traveling 500 miles per hour in airspace. 
Now, Moncala took off in his F-89C all-weather jet interceptor after this craft. He was sent up, go check this thing out. It's moving way too fast. We don't know what it is. But his radar blip connected with the UFOs and communication went dark and what was assumed to be a direct collision with this UFO. Now, Moncala and his plane have never been located, yet another one of these instances. And the U.S. Air Force uh, claimed Moncala crashed not into a UFO. They changed their story to a crashed into a Royal Canadian Air Force vessel, another plane that was supposedly in the area. What happened to that plane? That's a great question. Some people had uh, followed up on the story, and the pilot of that supposed craft claimed, I have never seen nor been aware of inter- any intercepting plane on that day or any other. And the RCAF, the, the organization from the Royal Canadian Air Force, on multiple instances have denied any incidences of that day, said there was no collision. They've talked to the pilot of the plane that the government said was the plane that crashed. Obviously, that pilot's alive. And not only alive, he's like, I don't know where you're, where you're getting this stuff. I don't know why you're questioning us about this. This did not happen. Now, this case I thought was super interesting, obviously, on a couple different levels. Number one, it's another vanished plane and pilot. No sign of the wreckage, no debris, no remains, nothing. I mean, no, no shred of evidence. Number two, the official cause of death reported by the military was that his plane crashed into another Royal Canadian Air Force plane. But when they were contacted, obviously, as I just said, totally denied it, had no idea what anybody was talking about, including the pilot that was supposedly died also in the crash. You know, pretty much declaring it, it, it just didn't couldn't have happened that way. So maybe, maybe here's proof that the U.S. military either truly doesn't know what's going on or just slapped a label on the case to risk embarrassment, or maybe just maybe they didn't want to know what really happened or they didn't want to explain what really happened. Was it a possible encounter or attack of another UFO that they just didn't want to get released to the public? We'll let you be the judge. So Bill, you're an educated college graduate, a bit of a skepticist, sure, but with an open mind. I like that about you. <laughs> what do you think is the reason why so many of these vanishing ships and planes, why they can't be found in, for the most part, shallow water? Well, I think part of it I touched on with that, you know, the lakes don't give up their dead. Um, that would explain why you don't find the human remains. Okay. And honestly. And that makes sense. I mean, I think it's kind of the same concept as when you're looking for something in your own house, right? It's always the last place you look. Well, of course it is, because that's where you found it. <laughs> or I put it up so I wouldn't lose it. You know, you it's still a big area, right? I mean, you, there's no way you can search every square inch of it. And then if the water's, you know, weather's bad or the water's murky or, or And whatever, that area is, I mean, it's a treacherous area of water. I mean, there, there are sailors and, and stuff that that sail the ocean that said they would prefer to stay out at ocean rather than well, and, the Great Lake areas because it's dangerous. And what's the dangerous. bottom of the lake look like? Is it perfectly smooth? Is there a lot of jagged edges? Is there caves? Or like there, a Grand Canyon down there? Yeah. I mean, did they, you know, what, depending on what the bottom looks like, they could be just missing things. So, I mean, I, I, I'd have to assume it's just, you know, they, they're there to be found. They just haven't been found. I mean, was it the Thomas Hume? It took like 100 years to find it. So Yeah. And- 40 foot of water? Uh, I think it was 100. 100 something, foot of 120 water. or something. Like that. And again, they weren't looking for the Thomas Hume. They were looking for an airplane. So Yeah. Interesting. 
Well, we'll let you all decide, but we very much appreciate you joining in on another little episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We appreciate each and every one of you. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and and rate us. Uh, If you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. It's about a part of Lake Michigan that is apparently also known to be very treacherous. 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 Known to be treacherous. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love. But we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.